Night falls. Werewolves. Open your eyes and say hello to the pack. You're hungry, aren't you? In silent formation, you prowl between the farmhouses. You smell some warm human blood. The pack gathers in the churchyard to confer. Which of the sleeping villagers smells the most delicious to you tonight? Oh, really? Him. All right. Stagger back to your homes, wash the blood from your muzzles, and go to sleep. Day breaks. Everyone wakes up. There's a sound coming from the town square. The constable's bell is ringing. Something terrible has happened. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And during that introduction, you were either going OMG, 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 or <laughs> you were like, what the heck is going on? That's right. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the heck is going on, we were referring to the game of Werewolf, now, sometimes known as Mafia. Right. I came to know this game as Mafia. Did uh, you Did you do Mafia first or Werewolf first? Werewolf first. And that's okay. one of the reasons I'm, I'm a werewolf purist on the game. Uh, and I, 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 I look down upon those who play it uh, with a Mafia theme. Now, we will explain the rules to the game if you don't know what they are in just a minute. But I, so I came to know this game first as Mafia, and I played it when I was in high school. I played mm -hmm. it with a bunch of friends of mine down in their basement, and we would play for hours at a time. It could just go on and on and on, and we'd introduce all these ridiculous variations. Because as you'll learn, once you know the basic rules of this game, it can take on any kind of textural overlay you want. It can be about werewolves. It can be about Mafia. Or, as we did when I was in high school, it can be about elves and orcs. Ah, and yeah. so every time a character dies, I guess they wouldn't die. The, the, the moderator would say, depart to Valinor. Oh, know? well, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, it's a social deception or a social deduction party game, depending on how you look at it, in which an informed minority – in this case, werewolves, attempt to overcome an uninformed majority, such as medieval villagers, mm -hmm. you know, or vice versa, depending on which team you're, you're playing on. Uh, but yeah, it is a deceptively easy game to learn. Uh, I found that just about anybody can get into it, uh, even if you're not a gaming person. Because you'll frequently, I'll, I'll frequently find myself at a, at a, a gathering and not everybody will be a board game geek. There'll be some board game geeks there, but it's hard to bring everybody together on what to play. This is one of those games that brings people together. Well, right. If you're at a party and you say, hey, let's break out the D20s, it's time to play Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. a lot of people are not not just going to be weirded out by the geekiness of it, but they're also going to be like, all these rules, i got to learn how to play. It's really... For some people, they just don't want to be bothered with all of the minutia of how to play the game and what the hit points are and everything. Right. Werewolf is like a version of D&D &D that takes away almost every single rule and strips it down to just pure role playing. And basically the only dynamics in the game are accusation and lying and killing. Yeah. And, and you don't need a, you don't need a board. You don't need to buy a copy of the game, though there are some nice print versions of the game available. But basically all you need are just some index cards or scraps of paper and a willingness to 
either draw a werewolf and some villagers on them or just throw some W's and V's and hand out the scraps. Robert, you have made me this morning an amazing collection <laughs> of werewolf game player cards on, I believe, How Stuff Works branded envelopes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you can really use anything and you can just throw them together at the drop of a hat. So it works well if you're with people at a cabin or something mm-hmm. or even in a hotel room. You can grab that that Howard Johnson notepad <laughs> and uh, the Howard Johnson pen and Rip create out pages of the Gideon need. Bible. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to go sacrilegious on it, uh, you might have to tweak the the fluff there a little bit for it. But right. Uh, but but yeah, this is this game is just a wonderful balance of to put it in those gaming terms, simplistic mechanics, but. But deep mechanics once you start playing with it and, 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 and then entertaining fluff. Yeah. And they will eventually prove scientifically and technologically relevant, which is the interesting thing and what justifies this foray into the land of the werewolves today. But I think for those people out there who have never played the game and are still going, what? What's going on? We should describe the rules, right? Yes. And hey, I just wanted to let you know. We played a few rounds of Werewolf with our coworkers here in the office at How Steph Works, and so we may play a few clips for you from those games. And I wanted to give a shout out to our coworkers Alex, Lauren, Tari, Ramsey, and Sarah for being really great sports and for killing us again and again. Yeah, they really got into it. We had to we had to remove a fair amount of cursing, <laughs> but it was worth it. So at the beginning of the game, you gathered together a bunch of players. And every player is randomly assigned a card telling them their role. So for most players, you're going to be a villager. For a select minority uh, in a group of, say, eight, mm-hmm. your select minority might be like two. And those players are going to be werewolves. Then the game proceeds into two phases that repeat back and forth, night and day, day and night. Now, a game master runs the game and informs everyone when to close their eyes, when to open their eyes. So you would say something like, all right, villagers, night falls in your sleepy medieval town. Uh, everyone closes their eyes except for the werewolves. Werewolves open your eyes and indicate who shall die tonight. Right. So the werewolves silently confer, They mm-hmm. usually with some kind of eye contact or pointing game, and they figure out who they want to devour or, I don't know, just disembowel and leave in the middle of the town. Yeah, I mean, that's the delightful thing about about being the game master is you get to throw in details about how they're torn apart. Right. All right, the sun comes up. But not for you, horse trainer. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> He was eating right down to the boots tonight. <laughs> Didn't even get a chance. <laughs> it's a little less pressure now that I'm dead. Can I loot the body? I need some supplies. <laughs> Robert, what's your favorite tear apart story? Oh, generally I just have like a portion of the individuals left behind because I like the idea that the werewolves are becoming so confident that they don't even have to eat everything. And uh, they would just, they're just as happy to spread terror throughout the the town as anything else. I'm still so full from that policeman last night. (laughs) All right. So night eventually comes to an end. That phase ends. All the villagers wake up. They find out who has been uh, eaten or torn apart in the night, and then they have to dish out their own uh, medieval mob justice. 
Right. So the dead villager who's been chosen by the werewolves is removed from the game. Mm-hmm. And I would say for total purity, I think that villager should not only be removed from play and can't make any comments, but should be banished from the room <laughs> where everyone is playing or at least sent to the corner. Oh, uh, well, There've got to be some stakes. Well, I <laughs> – but then you have somebody who gets eliminated right away. And mm-hmm. what I usually say is, look, you're a ghost now and you can't talk. You can observe – but you can't talk. And it's always amusing when the biggest chatterbox in the room uh, is is reduced to a ghost. You're, you're the grandpa on the cloud in the family circus. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like, like you said, day comes around and the villagers have to essentially form a mob mm-hmm. to find the killer and take care of them. And now, since these are werewolves, they're very powerful at night. You can't stop them at night when the full moon is out. But during the daytime... They're just regular humans, and you can take them to the gallows if you are pretty convinced that they're guilty. But how convinced are you? That's right. So it it comes down to a lot of a lot of blind accusations, a lot of you know self interested accusations, mm-hmm. and the the cool part too is that you have werewolves in there trying to uphold their cover as a human, and they're going to make a case too, probably for a non werewolf because because they know who the other werewolf. Or well, werewolves uh, are. Yeah, why would they accuse one of their own? So right. if you're Alice the werewolf, you don't want to accuse Jeff the werewolf. You want to accuse Rodney the villager of being a werewolf. Right, or jump on someone else's suspicion. Yeah. Uh, and, and then start encouraging that, anything to ca- cast the uh, suspicion away from you. And at the end of uh, all of this, there'll be some sort of a vote. Right. The villagers will decide who's going to be executed for the crime of lycanthropy. And then, only then, uh, and I think rules may vary on this, but the way we, we play it is that at this point, they can perform an autopsy and they find out if that was indeed a werewolf. Oh, okay. So in some versions of the game, you don't find out. You mm-hmm. don't know whether you just executed an innocent villager or a werewolf until the end of the game when it's finally revealed who was who. Ah, that sounds rewarding as well. Uh, because on one hand, with the with the autopsy, it gives the person a chance to see, like, I told you so. I told you I wasn't a werewolf. Right. But uh, on the other hand, I, I do You're like the You're a ghost idea. and you can't comment. Right. Well, that, <laughs> I like to think that's their last thing they get to shout before they, they drift into the <laughs> nether realm. Nice. Okay, so you've got this day-night cycle where somebody, some player dies and gets removed from the game every day and every night. And the cycle continues until the end of the game. So what brings about the end of the game? Well, you can tell which team wins if suddenly the werewolves outnumber the humans. Right. Or in some versions, I think if they equal the number of humans. Well, right. I yeah. mean, if you got the same number of werewolves and villagers... Yeah. And the villagers don't stand much of a chance. Yeah, then it's just werewolves slaughtering humans in broad daylight. Welcome to Werewolf City. Yes. Now, of course, the regular villagers win once they eliminate all of the werewolves in their midst, and the moderator can announce to them, you've gotten the last one, your village is safe for now, (laughs) until the next game starts, which is probably in about five minutes. Now, that's the basic game of werewolf or mafia. Mafia is exactly the same, except instead of werewolves, they're mafia members. Yeah. Same rules. Everything is just, it's just different texture. Yeah, different fluff, which I, I have to reiterate that I think werewolves are tremendously more fun mm-hmm. because I don't really like – I don't like playing my uh, my cool parlor game with murderous criminals. Right. I, I like the idea of the fantastic werewolf. They've got to be monsters, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so 
there are a million different ways you can throw some spice into this game, right? Mm-hmm. People play this game with all different kinds of crazy invented third-party characters. So it's not necessarily just villagers and werewolves. What if you add in – Robert, give me give me another player class. Oh, well, the one I love the most is the seer. Okay. How does that work? The seer has a separate phase in the night. Okay. So there's the phase where the werewolves get to open their eyes – and uh, pick out who's going to die and then close their eyes. But then you have another phase where the seer opens their eyes and they get to point to one person and the game master will give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down about their the presence of lycanthropy. So this gives one villager the chance to have secret knowledge. Generally, it's, you know, the odds are going to play out that it's probably going to be about who is not a werewolf as opposed to who is a werewolf. But then they have to be careful about tipping their hand in the arguments uh, that, that, that follow. Exactly. So you say uh, day comes around and you say, well, I know Jeff is a werewolf because I'm the seer and mm-hmm. I got the thumbs up on him last night. Guess who's going to die tonight? <laughs> Obviously, the person who's revealed themselves as the seer. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now, there are other variations on the, the privileged uh, knowledge uh, character. There is, a, a, for instance, the, the innocent child. And this is one I, I tend to not use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one involves uh, one player who gets to peak during oh. the night. So it's risky. So instead of having a separate phase in the night where you can ask the moderator, you have the option, if you choose, to open your eyes while the werewolves are conferring. Right. And this gives, of course, the werewolves a chance to actually spot you spying. Mm-hmm. So it adds this extra extra level to the play, I guess. Now, one way I know I have played is with a character that would be a doctor or maybe maybe even better would be the apothecary. Oh, yeah? How does who, this one work? Well, this is kind of like the seer, but instead of asking the moderator, every night the doctor can choose one person to make immune. Oh. So say the apothecary can – they wake up at a different phase in the night – and they give a potion to someone. And if it, that is the same person that the werewolves have selected, that person that person gets saved by the potion. The were, werewolf uh, attack does not succeed. Oh, that's nice. Uh, there's one that we sometimes use called the hunter, uh, where they get to take somebody down with them if they die. Oh. Which adds some sort of like shootout mentality uh, to, to the proceedings. Wow. Uh, another one I but wrote, it, man, if that happens early in the game, the hunter probably is going to be randomly getting another villager, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the problems with a real, uh, you know, uh, itchy crossbow f- uh, finger, you know? So tell me about the Cupid, Robert. Oh, the Cupid is one of my favorites. So this is just a villager, basically, but they get a phase at the very beginning of the game where they get to secretly pick two players to be star-crossed lovers. Mm-hmm. So if one dies... And they could be they could be a, a human uh, villager or they could be a werewolf, you know, masquerading as a villager. But if uh, the other lover dies, their character throws themselves off a bridge. Love knows no boundaries. Yeah. Monsterdom. Yeah. And it, so this one also adds that sort of crossfire dynamics of, whoa, this happened and then something else happened as well. Now, you can imagine that the strategy in this game, this game is odd because – at one level, it seems like when you start the game, you're just going to be making these totally random accusations. I mean, what do you have to go on? Maybe you thought you heard somebody next to you opening their eyes. I mean, it's hard It's hard to have anything to go on at the beginning of the game other than just mere suspicion. But strategy, I do think, tends to come in more as the game goes on. Yeah, that first phase of play, I think there are in, in my experience, there are basically two elements that are going to work. Unless somebody really does creak their chair – and make a very audible sign that that, that uh, clues in everyone else. Mm-hmm. You're going to have existing 
social dynamics coming into play. So like two friends who kind of pick each other at each other a lot. Okay. Um, they're likely to accuse each other of being a werewolf just because. Other factors, uh, if an individual in the group has a large beard, <laughs> I have found they're likely to, uh, to draw the, uh, you know, the, the fun suspicion of everyone else because there's nothing else to go on. What if they've just got dark, dried blood on their lips? That'll do it too. Now, another thing that comes into play, so is this. When, when I play it, when I am the game master for a game of werewolf, I generally ask everyone to choose a role in the village. Uh, this is not a game mechanics role, but just a fluff role. So you're just a villager, but you get to. I'm the dairy farmer. Yeah, you get to be the dairy farmer, or you're the, you know, you're the town fool. You're the, uh, you work at the the winery. You're a monk, etc. It just gives it an extra level of role playing fun. What do you What do you all do here? What are you up to in the Democratic Republic of? Catatonia. I'm a tailor, but I'm real bad at it. Terrible tailor. <laughs> Making terrible clothes. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm the leecher. I do the oh. leechings in the town. I hear that helps prevent lycanthropy. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Useful, useful. A lot of industry sprung up around this whole werewolf thing. Um, for instance, I, uh, I build coffins. Oh, okay. <laughs> coffins, leechers, terrible tailors. Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> I'm the town wannabe werewolf. <laughs> so like, werewolf groupie. Yeah, I'm the werewolf groupie. So I don't really have a job. I just like go from North Catatonia to South Catatonia, and I'm just like, ooh, look at the werewolf remains. So you would not be want to kill a werewolf or put one on trial, eh? Or is that your thing? Yes. No. I'll leave it there. The werewolf trauma has really had an effect on the population. Yeah. yeah, I see that. Yeah. All right. Whew. I'm a warlock. 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 Okay. Cast spells. Do you need any fancy robes? Yeah. I can make them uncomfortable. (laughs) I need you to come by my place at three to do another uh, werewolf protection spell. Sure. My place from werewolves. Sure. At three. I'm a midwife. Ooh. All right. Oh, man. I feel like you would be the only person doing anything noble here. Nobody in this village makes food. Nope. Nope. So we've got a warlock, we've got a midwife, we've got a groupie. Uh, we've got a terrible tailor, we've got a coffin maker, and we've got a bleacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just a voice that tells you things that happen. Like right now, as the sun sets in the hazy sky, and the babbling brook comes up. If there are two werewolves among us, let me see your eyes. But this can also give people ammunition for making blind accusations in the opening phase. Okay, so sometimes the accusations wouldn't be truly strategic just in terms of winning the game, but they might be playing along with some, you know, not actually strategic elements that are just part of the fluff. Right. So it's this weird mix of rationality and irrationality in the gameplay. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. But in terms of player classes, classes that have mechanics attached to them, the, the list just goes on and on. There, there are tons of fun uh, classes to play with. Some of them, you know, they kind of break the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you decide, well, we're not going to have that one again. Other ones introduce new mechanics, uh, new dynamics that, uh, that can just keep you playing werewolf into the wee hours. Here's the one I would go with. Tell me if you think this would break the game. Okay. The RoboCop. So the village has one <laughs> RoboCop uh-huh. that each night can administer harsh justice. Just to a random individual? Or how does, it, how does the RoboCop uh, decide? I guess the RoboCop's 
following some, you know, a list of, of orders. Well, it's by the rubric of serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law. Huh. And then maybe a secret fourth category. Oh, yeah, of course. We don't know. Well, but, hey, hey, Robert. Yeah. I, okay, so here's the thing. We've just described this weird game about killing your friends and then accusing your friends and then killing more of your friends. Mm -hmm. Why is this so popular? I, I've had the experience that whenever you introduce this to a group of people, especially if they haven't played before, they get ravenous for the game. Oh, and yeah. they're, they're like, yeah, yeah, we got to play more. Let, let's keep going. Yeah, it's so very addictive. And I think the, uh, the appeal of the game does come down to a few key reasons. So, some of these we've already touched on, but first of all, there's a very low learning curve. Virtually anyone can play. Yeah, it doesn't have D&D &D rules. It's just you can learn it in five minutes. Right. Uh, and also, again, while you can buy some pretty cool print versions of the game, everything you need is easily printed out or just scribbled on index cards and you're good to go. Again, Howard Johnson, a stationery and pen, and, and you're playing Werewolf. And then there's this. Uh, if anyone out there has ever played Rock Band or Guitar Hero, uh, at a social gathering, you know how that can just sort that, of create... That was popular for a while. It was. And I always noticed how it just turned the room into just this, this zombified state. Yeah. Where people aren't really interacting socially with each other. They're only interacting with each other in this this soulless uh, uh, presentation on the screen. It's like what was imagined by the bad guys in the movie Videodrome. Exactly. Yeah. Werewolf, on the other hand, it actually encourages social interaction among the players as well as varying degrees of role playing, depending on you know how comfortable the group is with that. But it that will that will come out organically as you play. Mm -hmm. And then, like a lot of great games, it's deceptively complex, easy to learn, but full of new twists and challenges as the players adapt and as new optional rules are introduced. So you learn to lie better, and you get better at spotting the lies of others. And if as you're doing a lot of back and forth role playing as well, it just gives you more and more ammunition. Now, I know there was one interesting article about this game that was published in 2010 in Wired that we both read. And one of the things that it points out is that this game is tremendously popular uh, among people who work in the tech business. That's a kind of odd thing to note. Like, wh why do you think that is? Yeah, this was an interesting article. They talked to Frank Lance, uh, director of the New York University Game Center. And uh, he pointed out that the game sanctions a lot of a titillating social activity. Hmm. So we're, you know, we're talking stuff like um, flirtation, confrontation, betrayal, meaning that it's not only great for extroverts, because obviously a bunch of, you know, ext extroverted theater majors are going to jump in and have a lot of fun with this. Uh -huh. But introverts as well, uh, it's instantly have license to engage in all of this fun social interaction. Yeah, stuff that you might normally be very intimidated to do in real life is sanctioned within the game. So there's a lot of direct eye contact and accusing people and being, yeah, like you say, just being very confrontational. It's appealing to do that in a controlled setting for people who don't feel much permission to do that in the rest of their lives. Right. So so Frank, he pointed out that this obviously ended up appealing to more introverted members of the tech industry. Mm -hmm. However, there's a CNET article from 2009 that pointed out that, that the game was also a hit with more of the, the corporate types as well. Mm. 
Because sure, you're not pitching an idea to a room full of investors, but you are a secret werewolf trying to shift blame onto an innocent human. And that's basic CEO material, right? Yeah, that's like what they teach in business school. Yeah. Or you're a seer or a child with secret insider info when you're trying to make a purely logical case without revealing your privileged status. So the, the, the level of social interaction can be seen as practice for actual villainy or or just this fun exercise that lets you, uh, you know, move social muscles that don't get a lot of exercise otherwise. I can't wait to get all the CEO hate mail. And this is going to be great. And like Mark Zuckerberg's writing in, you guys are totally biased. P.S. Not a werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so I've got a theory about why the game is so appealing. And I think it's that it mirrors and simultaneously simplifies so many high stakes, real life decision dilemmas uh, because the dynamics sort of like you just mentioned with with the idea of this business. You know, you've got some biz bro who is a secret werewolf and, and <laughs> trying to pull one over on the people who are being disadvantaged by what he's doing. The, the dynamic of the informed minority versus the uninformed majority is so common in the real world. Basically, this is a description of what is meant by the word conspiracy. Ah, oh, yeah, it's a werewolf conspiracy. Now, the concept of a conspiracy, I think, gets a bad rap because it gets associated with the more wild versions, like conspiracy theories tends to mean people who think interdimensional Sasquatches did 9-11. But, <laughs> but there's no doubt that under the broad definition, conspiracies exist all around us. Like any gang, any criminal gang is a conspiracy. Uh, every network of corrupt politicians and people who buy favors from them, that's a conspiracy. It's an informed minority trying to get advantage over an uninformed majority. Uh, unethical companies, of course, as we mentioned, could be described as conspiracies. And in every case, there's this small group working against the interests of the larger group, trying to keep their behavior secret and avoid accountability. Meanwhile, the larger group is trying to root out all the people who are working in secret against them. And it's entirely possible in all these real-world scenarios that this will lead to innocent people getting blamed and unfairly punished. And so Werewolf is cool because it reduces these most vexing problems in human civilization to this simple party game, this really distilled dynamic. And one of the one of the cool and appealing things about Werewolf is that at the end of the game, you always get to find out what actually happened, uh, right? Yes. Even if you lose, there's resolution to the mystery. You, you know, in our constant prosecution of the various mundane conspiracies in real life, time after time we find that we can't be certain what really happened. You know, the bad guy gets away with it and you never find out what they did or who they were. Or you prosecute somebody and they claim innocence all the way to the gallows and you can never really be sure you did the right thing. The appeal of Werewolf, I think, is you get to play this dangerous game that we're all constantly playing in real life in simulation, and you get to find out for sure how well you did at it. All right, listeners, on that note, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes as the commercial break session of play commences. And then when we come back, you may open your eyes, and we will discuss the history of Mafia and Werewolf. The warlock goes by the coffin shop, 3 p.m. He's a very punctual warlock. He's coming to do that spelly thing. He's got his books. He's got his uncomfortable robe on that the terrible tailor has tailored for him terribly. 
the coffin maker's nowhere to be seen. So while he's waiting, the warlock is taking a tour of the facilities, opens a little baby coffin, nothing but spider webs, opens a medium-sized coffin, empty satin liner, opens the large-sized coffin, and the coffin maker is within. Everything except for his face. Apothecary. I don't, have many, I don't have many direct dealings with her. Now, the apothecary has wanted to be a werewolf for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, maybe we should just kill her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, open your eyes. The sun has risen. Now, we've established that the clearly superior version of this game is the one with the werewolf fluff instead of the mafia fluff. But... Right. We've got to admit, it was Mafia before it was Werewolf. It was definitely Mafia before it was Werewolf. Uh, Invented by a guy named Dmitry Davidoff in, I've seen 1986 and 1987 cited. I think, I guess it was just around that period of 86, 87 in Russia, right? Yeah, yeah. He was a, a teacher in Russia. And I think this adds to the, maybe the appeal of the Mafia uh, motif. I don't know. Yeah. And he invented it as a psychological exercise for his students. Yeah. So he was a psychology student at the time and he was teaching high school and he explains that he wanted to teach psychology concepts, but thought that this type of game might be better at teaching some of these psychology concepts or at least more appealing to students than, I don't know, say a traditional lecture might be. I can Mm -hmm. certainly imagine why classes would have more fun playing mafia than they would listening to you talk about the latest findings on the science of deception. Exactly. Now, Wired interviewed Davidoff in 2010, and it's it's a fun article to look up. Yeah, I it's the same it. one we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. He insisted on being interviewed by Wired uh, within the uh, MMO world of Warcraft, for starters. <laughs> Dude, that's even better than saying I'll only do an interview in Second Life. Yeah. And he was he was extremely dodgy with some of his answers. Uh, so the resulting interview piece spends most of its time placing him within the context of his Russian upbringing uh, before moving to the United States. So he was born in Kamensk-Guralsky near the Kazakhstan border. Uh, and this was not too far from the 1957 uh, Kistim nuclear disaster. The Chernobyl explosion, which we've discussed on the show before, uh, occurred in 1986 while he was designing Mafia. He was teaching high school at the time, as we discussed, and he taught the game to his students. And the crazy thing is, it kind of just spreads out from there. Yeah, and one thing I love about this article is it establishes that he's about as weird as you would suspect from somebody who invented this weird social deception virus that infects people's parties all around the world now. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I know I already mentioned Videodrome once today, but it makes me think, you know, a person who says I will only be interviewed within World of Warcraft is like Brian Oblivion in Videodrome, <laughs> who will only be interviewed on television on a television. Oh, man, there's so much potential to create a, a horror franchise about some sort of a social deception game like this that just spreads. And it spreads so easily based on just how addictive it is and the, the various uh, benefits of play, as we've discussed already. Yeah. But uh, but the crazy thing, too, here is that this is largely an, a pre-Internet age yeah. in which it's spreading. So it, it really doesn't start picking up online until after 1997. 
That's when it, it hits the, the U.S., according to accounts that, uh, that we were reading. And uh, this is where Andrew Plotkin, a.k.a. Zarf. Oh, uh, Zarf. Yeah, okay. you might know him as Zarf. Uh, he, he's the one who picked it up in the U.S. and updated it with the werewolf fluff and then began uh, distributing it, uh, spreading the word of it online. Uh, so he told Wired uh, Magazine the following in 2010. I was fascinated with the game design. I had never seen a game with such a pure strategic underpinning. No mechanics to be strategic about. It was what poker would be if you didn't play with a deck of cards, but bet solely on other people's bets. It shouldn't have worked, but it did. I think he's exactly right about that. Like, it's it's kind of hard to understand what's so appealing about the game until you play it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder out there, if you're somebody who's never played this game before and you're listening and you don't get it, you're like, I, what is fun about this? It just sounds boring. You, you've got to try it. I suspect your mind will be changed. Yeah. Or maybe this is an occasion for more hate mail. And I should point out too that the game is, is so simple that not only is it a popular physical parlor game, like where people physically gather in a space and play with each other, it, it also, is played a lot online in online communities mm-hmm. because you don't have to have a spe- as long as you have a basic social interaction platform like just a basic chat room you can play werewolf yeah uh, you really don't need much uh, much more as long as you have some method of of randomizing the roles yeah which uh, is a, a pretty simple programming feat I guess uh, that's all you as, need yeah as long as you've got some kind of side messaging private messaging service yeah, yeah. you can do it now, another thing I love about Werewolf is how closely it resembles uh, a couple of, of key movies, uh-huh. uh, that uh, one, one of which I know that you uh, I, love as well. I know where you're going, but hit the first one first. Okay, so there's a 1974 film titled The Beast Must Die. Good title. It stars uh, Peter Cushing, a 34-year-old uh, Michael Gambon. Charles Gray. Oh, Demo 07. Yes, yes, he, he played Blowfield. Uh, he was Blofeld in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. That's right? right, yeah. He played the criminologist in Rocky Horror, uh-huh. and he also played Mycroft Holmes on the Jeremy Brett uh, uh, Granada Sherlock series. I'm sure he was great at that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was great, and he, he was terrific in everything. He is dry as a bone, yes. man. This is a very dry British film, uh, uh, as, as one might expect. And it's a, it's a werewolf whodunit based in large part on uh, the Agatha Christie uh, book and movies, uh, and then there were none. Uh-huh. So the film climaxes with a scene in which everyone gathers in a parlor, and they're tested with, uh, I think, a silver candlestick. They pass it around to see who's a werewolf. Mm. And this is the only movie that I know of to feature a werewolf break. This is a brief intermission for the audience to discuss their theories on who the werewolf is and then vote on the werewolf before you get the big reveal in the movie. Now, the really great version of this would be that the audience vote determines which reel they load into the projector <laughs> and becomes the werewolf in the final scene. Yeah, I, I, uh, that was not the case, though. Yeah. It was just, just a chance to discuss what you thought about uh, about the, the the movie up to that point. But I feel like we need more werewolf breaks in our films, even in non-werewolf films. Right. Say, for instance, you're watching Glengarry Glen Ross. The movie. Yeah. Okay. There are no actual werewolves in it, but I think that it's constructive to have a point where the audience talks about who might be a werewolf. Well, there's a there's a burglary scene. Like you yeah. could say, pause to discuss film. <laughs> and everyone pauses and goes into a extremely profanity-laced discussion about who broke into the office and stole those leads. Right. 
Now, another great scene that comes to mind that uh, is very reminiscent of Werewolf is, of course, the scene in John Carpenter's 1982 film, The Thing. Oh, I love it. It's the best. The scenes where you've do, you're doing the test yes. to determine who's got thing blood and who's got human blood. That's right. If it, you've never seen The Thing, it's one of the best horror movies ever made. And it's, it's got, what's so great about it, apart from just the music and the cast and all that, is that it's got these scenes where they're trying to figure out who's the thing. That's right. And, uh, and in the original John Carpenter adaptation of it, not the original film version of it, obviously. The Howard Hawks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in Carpenter's version, they test everyone's blood sample mm-hmm. one by one, sticking a, a heated uh, piece of copper wire in there yeah. to see if the blood acts to defend itself because the blood would act independent of the individual because it's a crazy shape-shifting uh, organism. Right. Each part is its own organism in the thing. Right. And so that's the test in that version. Uh, however, in the 2011 remake, which or it's kind of a remake, it's kind of a prequel. Uh, I thought it was still fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of people kind of uh, ragged on it, but they do an alternate version of the test, and uh, by checking to see who's who lacks amalgam dental feel- fillings, because the, the the theory is that the thing can't form inorganic matter or can't replicate inorganic matter. What? So if you practice good dental hygiene, they're just going to burn you alive? Yeah, it's not as satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's still amusing. That's kind of my that's my general review of the film. Okay, so if you're still with us and you haven't just paused the podcast to go play werewolf with your friends, you're probably wondering what is that stuff we referenced earlier about werewolf showing up in academic literature? Well, werewolf is an interesting game from several standpoints, and one of those standpoints in in academic research would be game theory, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, in in general, you see it popping up in a lot of different academic. Uh, papers, a lot of different psychological studies, mm-hmm. even AI studies, as we'll discuss. And a, a lot of it just comes down to the fact that this is a simple game that depends heavily on deception and also social inter- interaction and observational skills. Good things to model in computers if you are very sinister. Yeah. And as uh, David Off himself points out, it's not a game you can master. So, yeah, you can do a certain amount of math in your head, sort of card counting, I guess. But it's only going to get you so far. And it's ultimately difficult to predict who is going to win mm-hmm. uh you know werewolves or humans which is this is this is another wonderful thing about it it and and another reason why gaming can go on till 1 or 2 in the morning mm-hmm. because you don't reach that point where everyone's figured it out and you've you've essentially beat the game or you've evolved beyond this game and you need more complex games the crazy thing, of course, about all this is that the game started out as a sort of psychological exercise, and it comes for, become, comes around full circle and becoming a tool in various psychological experiments. Yeah, or, or a tool used to generate data sets for yeah. psychological experiments. And remember how we said that you don't need a board, you don't need dice, you don't need any other uh, materials. You just need that card that yeah. you glance at once and then stick in your pocket or you know push up under your your butt while you play that is an, that's another key advantage here uh, the cards are just initial reference points so there's really no reason to break from communication and immersion uh, with other players this is especially important for studies that factor in gaze pattern mm. so it's in a way it's it's again it's like poker without the cards it's just a pure social experiment right yeah you don't have to look at your cards you don't have to go examine your character sheet you're mm-hmm. just in the world yeah like there's a there's a game that that has some similar s- style to it called Spyfall. 
that came out uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these that if you're if you're up for the work, you can create a pen and paper version of it. But you generally have to buy a set. But it's a game where there's a lot of fun social interaction, but you end up referencing sheets a lot to remind yourself, like, what are the possible locations to guess in the course of play? It's still a fun game, but there is a distraction uh, uh, element to it that is not present in Werewolf. Okay, so we're going to game theory, psychology, and artificial intelligence. Let's look at game theory first. How, how does this game figure into game theory? Well, I guess we just need to define what game theory is real quick for anyone who's not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, its origins lie with John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern, and they introduced game theory to the world in 1943 with theory of games and economic behavior. So basically, this is the study of systems that have differential payoffs and different actors within them that uh, have competing motivations, right? That's right. As David K. Levine of the Department of Economics at UCLA points out, it's an economist's take on what a psychologist would call the study of social situations. Mm-hmm. And you have two branches of game theory broad branches. You have cooperative and you have non-cooperative. I think these are pretty straightforward. And then you have sub-branches that include decision theory, general equilibrium theory, and mechanism design theory. Now, if you've seen papers on game theory before or explanations of game theory before, one thing you're going to see a lot of is, for example, tables of payoffs, where Mm -hmm. you can have axes along a table that show different kinds of decisions you can make within this system, whatever the system is. It applies to various, you know, vast different kinds of situations, but different decisions you can make within the system and what the probability of different payoffs for those decisions is. Yeah, the create the creation of, say, a matrix that shows you what the different payoffs are uh, based on different player decisions. Yeah. Like the classic example for of this is of course the uh, the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. So this is a game where it's a very simple version of a game where you don't know what the other player is doing but you can make smarter decisions and less smart decisions depending on what the potential payoffs and punishments are for different decisions you could make. Yeah. And when we say game, it's not a fun parlor game no, in the same yeah. way Werewolf is, but it's just a, the, the mechanics of it are, are simple and, and fairly fairly interesting. Yeah. The idea is that you have two prisoners. They are, each were brought in because they're suspected of robbing a bank. Okay. And they have money stashed away somewhere. Yeah. And then the police are trying to get each one in a separate room to turn on the other. Yeah. So, so rat out your buddy and you'll yeah. go free. If neither rats... Then they both go, walk free and get their fifty percent share of the, uh, the the stolen money. Fifty percent. What if I want more percent? Well, then you got to be willing not only to rat out your partner, but be, be darn sure that they are not going to rat you out because but they're faced with the same problem. Exactly. So if you both rat each other out, then you both go to prison, and that money just rots in a hole somewhere. Mm-hmm. But if you rat them out and they don't rat out you, then you get to keep all of it and they rot in a hole somewhere, uh, or at least in the penitentiary. Mm -hmm. So yeah, depending on what the different types of payoffs are, there are ways of solving this game. And I I guess in the case where you're comparing money versus jail time, you would have to sort of render the jail time in a monetary value or something. Right. But you can work out probabilities of what your best decision should be given decision matrices like this. Right. 
Now, as you can imagine, this relates to werewolf uh, because you have it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to try and and chart out the motivations and respective pl- uh, payoffs for both villagers and werewolves. Yeah. Now, part of the problem with werewolf, though, is it highly it, it depends very much on what variables you allow to come into play. Because as we've said, the game is deceptively simple at its core, but there's all this stuff going on in it that makes it more complicated than the simple rules would lead you to believe. Yes. And then you have, of course, all these social elements that are coming into play as well, especially in that opening round. Uh Like how do you – how do you create a proper probabilities for, um, hey, Ramsey has a really long beard uh-huh. and looks kind of like a werewolf, so we're going to just blindly accuse him of murdering a villager? Well, I mean, we would say that in reality, since we know the cards are distributed at random, that would be basically a random accusation. Right. But I've seen just the, that first round random accusation pick up a lot of steam because ultimately there there are no real world stakes to werewolf. Of course, the question is, do players actually do any better when they're playing with some kind of strategy than they would if they were playing randomly? We'll come back to that. All right. So we're not going to hit you with a bunch of matrices and equations here. And we also can't possibly cover every study, every proposal, every research project to use Mafia or Werewolf. But we're going to touch on some of the interesting studies. And it's worth recognizing some of the recurring features of these studies. Yeah. So more often than not, you're going to encounter a very boiled down version of the Werewolf rules. So no cupids or anything. Right. Like generally... They're going to be most interested with just villagers and werewolves, no detectives, no seers or what have you, because let's face it, those are those are pretty great mechanics just right out of the box. Right. And also we mentioned the social dynamics that come into play. And these, again, can be very difficult to model. Yeah. So you might be wondering as a matter of course, generally who wins when you play this game? You've got werewolves versus villagers. Is there a, is there a standard way to predict who wins more often? Well, there was a probability paper called A Mathematical Model of the Mafia Game in 2013 by uh, Piotr Migdawa. And it found in, this is a big, this is a big caveat, but it found in a simulation where all killings are random, so nobody has any special information mm-hmm. in each round, the villagers execute somebody random and the werewolves kill somebody random. In this version of play, quote, it turns out that a relatively small number of the mafia members, uh, i.e. proportional to the square root of the total number of players, gives an equal winning chance for both groups. So if your number of mafia members is about the square root of the total number of players, it should be roughly 50-50. But the game isn't always that simple, and maybe the maybe players are better than random chance. What do you think, Robert? Yeah, I mean, especially when you factor in all these just additional aspects of the social dynamics. Uh, so the author here, he, he has another quote that I think sums up the difficulties of modeling the game. Yeah. He says, quote, a dry mathematical model may be a backbone of a more complex one, but certainly is not enough to describe a real game. During course of play, citizens gain some information, either by discovering another's identity by themselves or trying to catch messages Furthermore, voting may be subject to some kind of witch hut mentality. Moreover, rarely are all players the same. Usually there are ones with higher and lower influence on the others. Right. So some people are just really good at leading the angry mobs to drag somebody to the gallows. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people do actually get some kind of useful information in the course of play. I, I discovered a section in a book. Um, that goes into some of these interesting variations on the game. And uh, so 
So, Robert, see if you'll follow me down this path. I want to see how this compares to your werewolf experience. So the American writer Adam Gopnik, you you might know him from good essays in The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, his stuff's come up on here before. Yeah. Um, He published a book in 2008 called Through the Children's Gate, A Home in New York, which is basically a memoir about life in New York City, especially after 9-11. And in one section of the book, he talks about this period where his friends have become addicted to a variant of werewolf, though the version they play is mafia. You know, you can't judge them too harshly. (laughs) They are in New York. Uh, So that's a touchstone for them. And they play in groups of 15 to 20 with uh, three mafia, a narrator called God, one commandante, who's the detective character, basically the same as the seer, Mm -hmm. and then the rest are villagers. Oh, man. That's a big game. I, I like it. So Gopnik's played a lot, and he reports that the villagers win more often than the mafia. Hmm. So a minute ago we saw that mathematically, if if players are doing no better than random, you should predict about a 50-50 chance for each team to win. But Gopnik says the villagers win more often. And he says that in his experience, the best starting strategy if you're a villager is simply to look at everybody's face as soon as God commands you to open your eyes. And basically what you do is you just look around and you try to get a feeling for who looks guilty. Believe it or not, he says in his in his experience, this works better than you would expect. Hmm. Which, if he's correct about that, that would indicate that we do have some kind of natural guiltiness detection system built in how we recognize other people's faces. We might get to more about that in a study we look at in a minute. Uh, but as the game goes on, he says deductive reasoning becomes more important. So you look for, say, patterns in who gets killed after accusing whom. So you might start to notice that everyone who accuses Alice of being part of the werewolf mafia tends to get killed the very next night. You can probably guess what's going on. Then again, they might just be trying to throw you off the track. People are crafty. Um Gopnik writes that the ostensible pleasure of the game is in testing how good you are at lying uh, and how good you are at spotting lying behavior in others. Like, it's this captivating question. You always wonder how good you are at spotting a liar because it's hard to know in real life. Like I was talking about earlier, like, real life is full of so much ambiguity and questions that are never resolved in trying to root out the deception of other people. Mm-hmm. And there's one excellent section. I, I just wanted to read a quote from his book and see if it matches with your experience. So Gopnik writes, quote, The really fascinating thing about Mafia is seeing how much pure irrationality lingers in its play, how little real deduction and how much sheer panic govern its conduct. The game quickly breaks down, as social groups will, into small circles of belief, which become lynch mobs of mistrust on the next turn. As these small circles within the group form and break, the emotional authenticity of the alliances, the felt pleasure of trusting another, is startlingly, frighteningly real. I think it's Larry. It must be Larry, George says to you, filling his eyes with sincere persuasiveness, leaning forward, confident, conspiring, and you nod with conspiratorial glee. Yes, it must be Larry. Look at him. (laughs) And for that moment, the bond between you and George is so intense as to overshadow your general and complete lack of interest in George as a person. You and George against the mafia. But then the quick nightly shadow intrudes. What if George is the mafia? 
Yet the proper <laughs> suspicions, though they rise, rarely override these instant bonds. The impulse to trust and go on trusting a confidant is so strong that it often survives even overwhelming evidence that the confidant is a rat. So, Robert, you've played a lot. Does this match your experience? Do you think that that the game really more than anything else hinges on establishing bonds and connections with other players? Um, I think it is a huge part of it. And it, it, it gets back to that sort of icebreaker quality uh, of the game because I, I've certainly played it in settings where I don't know a lot of people. Yeah. And there'll be like a large portion of the group that is, you know, a, a, another friend group. Right. Uh, that I'm, I'm not privy to. It's interesting to play in a group like that because he, he mentioned connection, the connection that exists during these accusations in the, in, in the middle of all of this uh, debate. Yeah. And it does give you this, this amazing chance to have this really intense connection with somebody that you, you're maybe even not even sure what their name is right now. You just right. know them as, oh, well, they're, they're the, uh, they're the, the bread baker in the medieval town. Right. And that's the, that's maybe the, as much as you know about their life, but you have this intense, uh, connection based on the game. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, by the way, that's another reason, uh, as a, as, as the game master, I like to dish out the different, or not dish them out, but ask people to choose a role in the medieval village. Right. Because it gives you something to refer to if you don't know their name yet. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. You can just say, oh, if you can't remember it's Carol, you can just say, and then the, 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 the cobbler of the town, uh, no. is found dead. And you don't have to <laughs> say Carol. Uh, well, I've got an observation along similar lines. Gopnik says another part of what's great about the game is it eliminates the need for other conversation and small talk with your neighbors at a party. He says, quote, instead of telling them elaborate social lies in an unformed context, you get to tell them elaborate social lies in a formal one. Yeah, yeah. This comes back to just the immersion of the the, the werewolf gaming experience because – it, it is often the case where people just go, they just go all in on it. Yeah. And they're not going to be talking about anything else. They're not talking about the, you know, the day that everyone had or, uh, or what supper was like. They are just all in 100%. Yeah. Uh, firing along these, uh, these, these new, uh, uh, communicative pathways. Yeah. One more dynamic he mentions is that the game is actually filled with mini games based on existing relationships. Specifically, uh, yes. he singles out couples that are playing. Each couple tries to catch the other, the, the partner in that couple lying and focuses primarily on whether they should be suspicious of their own partner. <laughs> does good. that, does that match your experience? Yeah. As well? Yeah. I mean, especially in that opening round of play, they don't have anything else to go on except existing real world social connections a lot of times. And, and those, those end up being used. And then when people start making accusations, uh, those uh, social dynamics come into play as well. It's another reason I really like the Cupid role mm-hmm. because you get into this uh, like why why does the Cupid choose these two people to be star-crossed lovers? Right. You know is it because they're actually a couple? Is it because they were like teasing each other early in the evening uh-huh. or it's just hilarious to think of them as lovers yeah, to uh, make them embarrassed? Yeah, yeah. So it it add, that is a case where it adds this extra level of of interaction, uh, uh, not only with the in-game social uh, uh, dynamics, but uh, uh, real-world social uh, dynamics as well. Right. It's it's like dad humor, like, tell yeah. us about your boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the science of deception and werewolf. Kapow! Oh, 
Autopsy report? Well, we pulled back what, her death by costume. <laughs> and beneath was but a human. Oh. oh. You should never pretend to be a werewolf. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did what is this? Werewolves way? triumph again? Unfortunately. Ow! Unfortunately. Oh. I was the seer. Oh. I knew that she was I a werewolf. Oh. Right away. You never got to play. Oh. Oh. To be the werewolf. Well, such is life. And the first thing I was going to do is declare that I was the seer and and point out the werewolf. That is so noble. Right. Yeah. Man. That would have put a whole different dynamic that we had not yet experienced. That's what I'm saying. You. Good thing we off with your head in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) You're being very aggressive. Tori, who do you think is the werewolf? And I don't like it. And I think you're the werewolf. Joe is because he's been. I'm not. He's been I'm, I'm seriously not this neutral. time. <laughs> I would say no. Sides. I'm trying. I'm trying to get a vibe on somebody, and she actually seems kind of sincere. Um, I think Robert. I think maybe Robert. I again am just. <laughs> Look at that devilish grin. Look at that sly devilish grin on his face. This is the grin of someone who knows perfectly well that their soul is pure. Look at that my hard work has uh, has scrubbed away hard whatever work. miners glowing with satanic delight. Look at this. Now, earlier we mentioned a Wired article from 2010 about the game, and it addressed this question of the, the scientific study of deception and what, what psychology can tell us about deception within the game of Werewolf. According to a gaming psychologist at the London Metropolitan University named Simon Moore, there's actually not much diversity in our skill at spotting liars. According to Moore, there are not human lie detectors walking among us. Quote, if you ask someone on the street, are they better at detecting a liar than a police officer, they'll probably say no. But a police officer and a general person both have a 50% success rate <laughs> at detecting liars. Man, that's that's frustrating. You You would hope there would be people who would be better at it among us. Yeah. I mean, you certainly, when you do start using lies, you become even more... Uh... Self-conscious, you think, oh, they're going to see right through it, but really, they have a fifty-fifty shot. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's at first, though. Certain circumstances, according to Moore, do tip the balance and change our ability to get away with lies and also to detect lies in others. For example, when you're stressed, it's harder to get away with lying. Now, we all know about the uh, the fallibility of the polygraph test as a true lie detector test. Mm-hmm. But there is some truth to the principle on which the polygraph test is based. It's just not necessarily as reliable as it is often depicted in fiction or maybe even in some people who actually use it. Uh, but the, the principle it's based on is that lying causes these stress, physiological stress reactions in the body that it, you know, messes with your heart rate. It messes with your blood pressure and stuff like that. Um, and as you get more stressed, it gets harder and harder to lie. So this would sort of mean that at the beginning of the game, lying might be easy when there's not much pressure on you. Mm -hmm. As other players get eliminated and the spotlight narrows on you and the stakes of the game go up, Moore predicts that it's going to be harder and harder for people to get away with lying without people seeing through their facade. 
Yeah, because early in the game, especially if you have a larger group, it's easy to just sort of sit there quietly and decide with this faction or another. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as things as things proceed, you have to be outspoken. Uh, otherwise, people are going to be suspicious of your silence. Right. And that actually is a factor in another study I'm going to mention in a minute. Now, Moore also says lots of our lies are lies of exaggeration. I think we probably know this from experience. People are more likely to sort of turn a half-truth into a, a, a big exaggerated claim than they are to just blatantly say something that is completely untrue with no basis in reality, right? Right. People are more more likely to fudge than just to make up a total lie. And so blatant lies like, I am not a werewolf when you know you are, are more difficult than these kinds of exaggerations. But Moore also says it's easier to lie about straightforward information than to lie about your own emotional state. So if you're trying to put on a show of outrage, like, you know, how could you accuse me of being a werewolf after all of our friendship or whatever? Mm -hmm. How could you accuse me? You quickly exhaust yourself and Moore says that a person doing that is going to start to falter at this deceptive performance. The feigned outrage turns into sort of more simple objection or turns into other emotions that are easier to fake like aggression and people will pick up on this. You start to look like a dirty rat. Yeah. And this is given as an explanation for why the villagers actually win more often than a simple random choice would would uh, predict villagers at some point do start to be able to notice people lying. And we have some some studies to back this up. Yeah. Early, yeah. Some uh, some studies that are generally conference proceedings here. So uh, who, who knows exactly how correct these claims are. But uh, the, these are some claimed findings on how to detect deception that we found related to the game werewolf. So. One was uh, called, Are You a Werewolf? Detecting Deceptive Roles and Outcomes in a Conversational Role-Playing Game. And this was presented at uh, Acoustic Speech and Signal Processing in uh, 2010 IEEE International Conference. And the authors here created this automated method for detecting players determined to be liars by analyzing the acoustic properties of their speech patterns. So I thought that was interesting. Can a computer just listen to quantitative elements of what happens when somebody speaks mm-hmm. and say, ah, I caught a liar here. So they tried to correlate that. They tried to find, OK, can we can we listen with the computer and see, does it detect patterns in lying? And they claimed that it did. They said their method could successfully predict lying behavior better than chance just by listening to acoustic properties. What does this mean for human players? Well, one simple finding seemed to be that liars speak less. Huh. Presumably to limit their risk of making revealing mistakes. This is interesting because one thing I, I've, I've definitely seen before is you have a case where someone's a very outspoken werewolf critic. Yeah. You know, they're very outspoken. They're, they're going to be the lead detective in finding the murderers in the village. Uh-huh. But then they'll come a they'll come a, 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 a game where they're suddenly a lot more quiet. Uh-huh. They're not making all these accusations. They're not they're not right at the front of the crowd with the pitchfork. Right. And people notice and they say, well, John is kind of quiet this round. Right. Suspiciously quiet as if uh, perhaps he is a werewolf. 
Yeah, come on, Cynthia. Didn't you have some zeal for werewolf killing in the last game? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly you've got you've gone soft on uh, lycanthropy. Hmm. Yeah. So that does seem to be a good tell. People who are trying to maintain deception offer less information. They just talk less, and it's pretty easy to see why. This study seems to confirm that finding. Also, it found that quote the distribution of pitch and energy values are higher for liars. So according to the study, if somebody is raising their voice in pitch and volume, they're slightly more likely to be a liar. Oh, okay. That's interesting because I, I know that I have uh, – I, I sometimes raise my voice mm-hmm. when I am, I'm lying about not being a werewolf. Really? Yeah. I'll be like, well, how dare you accuse me of that sort of thing. Now I'm going to have to be careful. I'm going to have to keep it low. You got to talk more and you got to stay calm. Yeah. I, but how do you stay calm about something like this? Look, villagers could, are dying. How could you accuse me of being a werewolf? Here's the thing: I'm not a werewolf, and the reason is, yeah. yeah and this is where the this is actually where the fluff becomes nice, the right. sort of villager fluff, where you can say, well, "How could I possibly be the werewolf? I am the cobbler. Uh-huh. I, I, I have to make shoes all night. If I was running around slaughtering townspeople, uh-huh. then everyone would be barefoot." Right. <laughs> Okay, so a couple more. One was a 2008 paper uh, by Zhao and Sung, which was called Cues to Deception in Online Chinese Groups. And this is a, a sample group of Chinese players playing online. The authors found that, quote, deceivers tended to communicate less, yet again, so people who talked less are more likely to be liars, but also, quote, showed low complexity and this is in their speech, meaning, for example, shorter sentences and shorter words. And then they continue, and high diversity. So that means, for example, more unique words. So their analysis found that you want to look for a liar, look for the one who doesn't talk much. When they do talk, they might talk in shorter sentences or less complex words, but use more unique word choice. Interesting, interesting. Okay, one more. Uh, this was a 2015 paper called Detection of Deception in the Mafia Party Game. Obviously, we got some people who don't understand the benefits of werewolf. <laughs> and this one presented another automatic system for lie detection. This time it was based on facial cues, so the movements of eyebrows, eyes, and mouth on videos. And this one's kind of hard to explain because it's hard to translate what they found about facial movement analysis into words here on this podcast in a useful way. But just quickly, some of their tentative findings apparently showed that eye, eyebrow, and mouth movements caused by lying might be those more associated with fear, guilt, or delight, while truthful facial expressions might be those that you would more closely associate with sadness. Okay, but this is all with humans, right? Humans and arguably some werewolves. Right. (laughs) I don't know how the game would change if you had real werewolves playing among your party friends. Ooh, but oh, that that would be great. If werewolves were real, we'd have to get them in one of these studies and yeah. see how they play. But what we've not looked at so far is computerized players. That's right. And there there are a number of cool studies that look to this uh, because another great way to use werewolf is uh, is if you're studying either lie-detecting robots or robots that lie. And when I say robots, I'm, of course, using the yeah. fun version of robots. We're actually talking about uh, uh, programs and mm-hmm. or or very soft uh, AI to try and determine patterns of human behavior. Well, no, actually, so to clarify, I guess we have looked at a couple of papers that claim to have a 
method for determining some kind of automated lie detection. Mm -hmm. We haven't looked at AI liars yet. Right. And we haven't, I guess, looked at like robust AI players that incorporate information about lie detection or that really try to, uh, to get in the mind of the liar, just more like they're detecting correlations and things sorted out by the humans. Anyway, let, let, let's look at some AI lying. Okay. All right. Well, I was looking at uh, uh, a presentation uh, titled The Great Deceivers, Virtual Agents and Believable Lies. Good. And this was by uh, Dias et al. Uh, they'll come up again. And this was presented at the 2013 Proceedings of the Annual Meeting of the Cognitive Science Society. Okay. So they used Werewolf, uh, and they used Werewolf, not Mafia, so thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> they used it to test a two-level theory of mind model for virtual agents. Now, theory of mind, of course, just to refresh, that is our basic human ability to conceive the mind state of another person. Right. It, absolutely crucial for lying. Right? right. It's kind of hard to lie if you can't imagine what somebody else's mental state is because in lying, you're trying to make their mental state not correspond to what you know to be true. Right. Now, why would they be doing this? Uh, well, they wanted to see – uh, which version, either a, a, a one-level or two-level theory of mind model, would uh, would make this uh, actor seem, seem more socially intelligent? A one-level or two-level theory of mind model. Okay, so let me guess what that is. One-level theory of mind is I know what you're thinking or at least I'm imagining what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Two-level would be what? I imagine what you're thinking about what I'm thinking. Yeah, you get into that whole would he tell me that this door leads to the center of, of the labyrinth sort of a situation. <laughs> right. Uh, so you're you're modeling someone else's theory of mind in two-level theory of mind. Right. So, so here's a quote from the paper just to, to boil it all down. Two versions of the werewolf agent were implemented. One has a single-level theory of mind, able to represent what victims believe, but not what victims think it or the other victims believe. The second has a two-level theory of mind, able to represent what victims think about what it knows, and in general, what victims think about the suspicions of others. And then, <laughs> and then both versions uh, had uh, inference rules to determine suspects. Okay. Now, I would generally imagine that a computer that tries to go two steps down the rabbit hole would be better at lying and detecting lies, right? Yeah, and that's that's pretty much what they found. They found that a two-level theory of mind werewolf had a leg up on uh, single-level theory of mind villagers. And then a follow-up test showed that, uh, that indeed the two-level theory of mind werewolves were also perceived as being more intelligent than a single level theory of mind werewolf. And of course, this becomes important when you're just, you're not talking about like how to build uh, an AI that is going around deceiving people or certainly going around killing people in the night, but just how to create something that comes off as more human. Right. I mean, it does sort of make you think that some of the same skills that are crucial for deception and, and constructing elaborate social lies for the people around us are the same skills that are good social lubricants and make yeah. us get along well with others. That would be a depressing finding, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's somewhat true. Yeah, this sort of thing is, is ultimately about creating chatbots <laughs> for the future that feel more human when they're scamming you. Now, another presentation we ran across uh, from 2014, and this was another uh, IEEE International Conference uh, presentation, and this was by uh, Dasuki Katagami. 
at all, titled Investigation of the Effects of Nonverbal Information on Werewolf. <laughs> okay. And uh, So wait, is this an AI werewolf it or is, an AI werewolf detector or um, both? It's, the purpose of the research, uh, they stated, was to develop an intelligent agent, quote, AI werewolf, which is enabled to naturally play werewolf with humans. So okay. it's it's all about machine learning. Right. Their findings were, quote, we found that nonverbal information in the game of werewolf has importance to winning or losing the game. Okay. Which, you know, is kind of an overstatement of the obvious, I guess. But here we see it uh, proven out in this, this cool AI werewolf study. Now, people sitting at home might be thinking, why are we specifically training computers to be good at killing us in the night and getting away with it? <laughs> well, again, it's 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 more that these are extreme versions of the, the skills that we use every day. Yeah. You know, it, it comes down to that CEO analogy we made earlier. Uh, the average person is not engaging in, in these in such titillating versions of social interaction, but we're engaging in varying lesser versions of them. Yeah. Yeah, in the same way that you see uh, animals wrestling at play when they're children, you know, to sort of distill some of the main dynamics yeah. of physical struggle for survival. I guess this is sort of an adult version of wrestling with words and eye contact. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's that, it's that most primal of games, but done at the, the abstract level, at the level of social interaction rather than just rolling around on the ground. I'm glad you brought up the children, uh, Joe. Uh, because uh, there was, I'm going to mention real, real quick here that there was a an additional study I came across: werewolves, cheats, and cultural sensitivity, <laughs> by uh, Lim et al. And this was a 2014 conference paper presented at uh, Autonomous Agents in Multi-Agent Systems. And this one was really cool because it basically boiled down to having children observe two different virtual games of werewolf. So they're not playing; they're just watching. Right there, I think they use the term imaginary friend. Like okay. you're, you're not a player, but you're, these are real people supposedly playing and you're mm -hmm. observing their game. And they use the version A and version B have slightly different rules. So one version seems far more unfair. And so basically they were using the game as a way to, uh, to just look at cultural sensitivity or insensitivity and attempting to, to model it. Uh, it, it's interesting, though, they said that it didn't work out all that well. The exercise actually caused the children to reinforce their view that the in-group is correct and that the out-group is incorrect, rather than seeing that there are different ways to go about it, different ways to play the game. I feel like that is a common dynamic I've come across multiple times, is that studies find some attempts to discourage toxic social cognition can often seem to reinforce it. Mm -hmm. Does that seem like something you've come across before? Yeah, yeah. And of course, it brings us back to werewolf because what is werewolf but a a game that looks at, uh, at at toxic social interactions? Yeah, it's the only game where you get to have a uh, a vigilante mob that kills somebody every single day. That's right. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Now, obviously, we would love to hear from everyone out there, uh, certainly newcomers to the game of werewolf. If you listen to this episode and then you go out and try it for yourself, we would love for you to report back. However, if you've been playing this game for, for years and years now, 
we obviously want to hear about uh, about your favorite additional rules, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some even uh, homebrew rules that you've come up with. Let us know about it. Give us your werewolf tales or your mafia tales, and, uh, and, and and we'll chat with you about them. Here's what I want to hear if you already have a werewolf group that plays regularly. If you can find out a way to incorporate a RoboCop character <laughs> class in a way that doesn't break the game and heightens the tension and makes it even more fun, write in, tell us about it, and we we guarantee we will read that on the air. All right. Hey, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you will find the landing page for this episode. You'll find all the past episodes, and you'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And hey, over on Facebook, that's where we have a group, uh, the, the Facebook group, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. Hop in there. That's a great place to have longer-form discussions with other listeners and with the hosts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, the old-fashioned Way, the version that might be used by some medieval villagers conferring about how to kill a werewolf in their midst, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Oh, 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 oh.